Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 30. Today we'll be reading Book 8, Chapters 7 through 9 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast Godsplaining. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. All right, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So we talked in the last episode about the new man and the old man, the kind of new will and the old will. St. Saint Augustine is going to expand at great length on the two wills because he's worried that this type of scriptural language might give the Manichaeans a point in their favor, or at least they use it to their advantage when they're saying like, oh yeah, there's like good things and bad things, and there's a good God and a bad God. And he's like, no, no, no. That is false. So, <laughs> so he's going to talk about, you know, spirit and flesh. He's going to capture the dynamic of conversion and then engage in an involved philosophical meditation on these themes so as to refute those among whom he was formerly numbered. Also, to increase the conversion suspense, because you were thinking maybe he'll convert in this episode. Instead, you have a sweet philosophical interruption. So let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 7. This was the story of Ponticianus. But you, O Lord, while he was speaking, turned me back toward myself, taking me from behind my own back where I had placed myself, unwilling to look upon myself. Now facing myself head on, I was able to see how foul I was, how crooked and defiled, how blemished and ulcerous. As I beheld myself, I stood aghast with nowhere to flee. And if I sought to avert my eyes from myself, he would continue with a story, and you would again set myself before my gaze, thrusting me before my eyes so that I might discover my iniquity and hate it. See Psalm 36.2. I knew it, but it acted as though I did not see it, winking at it and then forgetting it. But now, the more ardently I love those whose wholesome affections I heard of, men who handed themselves completely over to you to be cured, all the more detestable did I seem in comparison with them. Because many years, some twelve in total, had now gone by for me since my nineteenth birthday, when having read Cicero's Hortensius, I was stirred to an earnest love of wisdom. And here I was, still dragging my feet, refusing to reject mere earthly happiness, so that I might give myself over to searching for that very thing that ought to be put first, not only the discovery of it, but in fact the very search for it, before the possession of this world's treasures and kingdoms and the pleasures of the body all about me and ready at hand. But I, wretched, most wretched, from the first days of my youth, had begged you for chastity and said, give me chastity and self-restraint, though not yet. 
for I feared that you might heed my request too soon and quickly cure me of the disease of concupiscence, which I wished to have satisfied rather than extinguished. And I wandered along crooked ways in a sacrilegious superstition, indeed not sure that it was true, but rather preferring it to the others that I did not seek religiously, but opposed maliciously. And I had thought that the reason why I kept putting off the rejection of this world's hopes day after day in order to follow only you was because there was nothing certain to direct my steps. And now the day had come when I was to be laid bare before myself and my conscience was to reproach me. Where are you now, my tongue? You said that you did not like the idea of casting off the baggage of vanity for the sake of an uncertain truth. Now, though, it is certain. And yet, that burden still oppresses you while those who have not so worn themselves out seeking it, nor thinking upon it for over ten years, have had the load lifted from their shoulders and have received wings so as to fly away. Thus, as Ponticianus spoke to me, I was gnawed within and greatly confounded by horrible shame. And once he finished his tale and saw to the business that had brought him, he went on his way, and I turned inwardly to him to myself." What did I not say against myself? In what way did I fail to lash my soul that it might follow me and strive to push on to you? Yet it drew back. It refused, but it did not excuse itself. All arguments were spent and refuted. All that remained was a mute shrinking back, and my soul feared, like death itself, to be restrained from the course of habit by which it was wasting away to death. 8. Then, here in my inward dwelling place, amid this violent quarrel that I had raised so strenuously against my soul, here in the inner chamber of my heart, see Isaiah 26.20 and Matthew 6.6, troubled in mind and countenance, I turned to Olypius and exclaimed, What is wrong with us? What is it? What did you hear? The unlearned rise up and take heaven by force, see Matthew 11.12, and we, full of learning yet empty in heart, behold, where do we wallow in flesh and blood? Are we ashamed to follow because others have gone before us? Do we feel no shame at the fact that we do not even follow? I said something like this, and the turmoil of my mind tore me away from him while he stood there gazing at me in silent astonishment. For this was not my normal tone, and my forehead, cheeks, eyes, complexion, and tone of voice spoke my mind more than the words I uttered. Our dwelling had a small garden we could use just as we used the whole house, for our host, the master of the house, was not living there. The great tumult in my breast had driven me there, where no man might restrain the hot contention that had broken out between me and myself, until it should at last end as you knew it would, though I did not. But such disturbance was healthy, and such dying was the source of life. Yet I only knew that I was evil, and I did not know the good that would soon be mine. Thus I went into the garden, and Olypius was close behind, for his presence did not lessen my privacy, and how could he forsake me in such a disturbed state? We sat down as far as possible from the house. I was troubled in spirit, filled with the greatest of indignation that I was not subject to your will and covenant, O my God, which all my bones cried out to enter, praising it to the heavens. But we make such an entry neither by ships nor chariots nor on foot. No, we need not move even as far as I had come from the house to the place where we were then sitting. For not only to go, but to enter therein was nothing other than to will to go there, though to will it wholly and resolutely, not turning and tossing this way and that with a maimed and half-divided will, struggling with one part sinking while another rose upward. At last, in the midst of the very agitation of my irresolution, I strained like a man who wishes to move but cannot, either because he does not have the limbs to do so, or, if he does, is bound by chains, weakened by infirmity, or hindered in any other way. Thus, if I tore at my hair and beat my forehead, or locked my fingers together and clasped my knee, I did it because I willed it. But I might have willed it yet not have done it, if the power of motion in my limbs had not obeyed. 
So many things I then did when to will was in itself not enough to be able to do. And I did not do what I then longed incomparably more to do and what soon thereafter I should be able to do when I so willed it. For soon, when I would will, I would do so. For in these matters, ability was one with the will, and to will was to do, and yet it was not done. Indeed, my body obeyed more readily the weakest willing of my soul, moving my bodily limbs at the soul's mere nod. Then did my soul obey itself in order to execute this, its momentous willing, in the will itself alone. 9. What is the source of this unnatural and monstrous situation, and to what end? Let your mercy fully shine forth, so that I may ask if the secret penalties of men and those darkest pangs of the sons of Adam may perhaps give me an answer. What is the source of such an unnatural and monstrous situation, and to what end? The mind commands the body, and it obeys instantly, but the mind commands itself, and is resisted. The mind commands the hand to be moved, and the hand is so ready that the command is barely distinct from the obedience. However, the mind is mind, and the hand is body. The mind commands the mind, its own self, and yet it does not do what it commands. What is the source of this unnatural and monstrous situation, and to what end? It commands itself, I say, to will, and it would not command unless it willed, and yet what it commands is not done. But it does not will entirely, therefore it does not command entirely. For as far as it commands it wills, and as far as something that is commanded is not done, it is not willed. For the will commands that there be a will, not another, but itself." but it does not fully command, and therefore what it commands does not come into being. For if the will were to exercise itself fully, it would not even command it to be, for it would already be. Thus, there is nothing unnatural and monstrous when one partly wills and partly does not will. Rather, the mind is diseased when it does not wholly rise, borne aloft by the truth but weighted down by habit. Therefore, there are two wills, because one of them is not full and entire, and what one lacks the other has." Okay, so St. Augustine begins this passage with another cool image of his own unconversion. (laughs) He describes himself as engaged in like a game of hide-and-seek in which he is the sole player, so he is both, you know, seeker and sought, and like he's hiding behind his own back, or he's refusing to come before himself face-to-face, but once he sees himself, he is astonished and ashamed. And I think that, um, you know, this brings before our eyes a couple of cool or interesting interrelated themes. One, sin and vice make us ugly. And I don't think that we always reckon with that because a lot of people who live very public and prominent lives do a lot of sinful and vicious things, and we esteem them pretty. And sometimes we might, we might even model our, our wardrobe or our haircut or something else off them. But there's a kind of vision which is imparted to us by faith, whereby we can see innermostly, or we can kind of pattern our vision after that of God, not so that we can judge people with greater severity, but we can get to the heart of what matters. And oftentimes, when we search those hearts, we find that there isn't much there, or that they care about things which, which don't matter too terribly much. Whereas when we search the hearts of those who might, to outward appearance, seem ugly, you can think of St. John Paul II as he suffered with Parkinson's at the end of his life, or St. Teresa of Calcutta, who survived, you know, like, many, many health crises at the end and was very much reduced by work, by labor, by sadness, by by pain. And yet we would say of them that they are radiantly beautiful. So yeah, Father Jacob Bertrand, how about the life of sin and vice versus the life of grace and virtue and the way in which it has an effect on our humanity for those whom we might encounter? Yeah, we're very good at dressing up and like putting on the facade and these sort of things, you know, where it's people are engaged in less than wholesome activities, but like you were saying, they they dress well or they present themselves well. So it it comes off as okay. 
And it recalls to mind the sort of the imagery that Christ uses of, you know, the outside of, of the pot is, is clean, but the inside is, is not. And yeah, I guess how that's perceived and how that's seen by the world is one consideration. You know, I think it's a trick of the devil to dress up what is ugly and vicious to make it at least appear to be like enticing and, and beautiful and that sort of thing. But the other reality here is the, is the emptiness that it causes within oneself, you know, that ugliness, that, that sort of vapidness, it's just unfulfilling. And we see like, this is why there's a return and a return and a return to the things that are, you know, not good because we need them again and again and again, because they don't satisfy, they don't fulfill, they don't accomplish what they need. And I think in that it, it creates in us a sort of a blackness of soul that is at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's just sad. It brings about a sadness, an emptiness, a lacking. Um, I think in our own sin, we experience that, that there's just a sort of yeah, an emptiness, a lacking. And it's different than the the sort of restlessness that Augustine speaks of or the restlessness of a saint, but it's just kind of nothingness. And as we've talked about in so many of the episodes and in, in, in the season that like we're created for something, we're created for someone. So it stands in stark contrast in my mind and my thought. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, St. Augustine is coming to grips with that at this stage. I mean, he's been coming to grips with it for the past however many years. He says at this stage that it's been 12 years since he read the Hortensius. So he was 19 when he read the Hortensius, uh, when he was first inspired by love of wisdom. So that means that here it's, he's 31 years old. Uh, so it's like, you know, 385-ish, give or take. And he's going to receive the sacraments, as we know. I mean, spoilers, but we know that's happening next year. Uh, or at 32 years old, because we have the date of his baptism uh, recounted in one of his own works. And then he's looking back on these these particular events in his life from what we have said to be somewhere between 397 to 400 AD. So he's like somewhere between 43, maybe 46 years old, but midway through the journey of his life, as Dante would say. And so he's looking back on himself, a kind of figure prone and prostrate, just ground under by the difficulties of life, but ground under most by his own sin and vice, by his own irresolution and inconstancy, his own incapacity to surrender before the Lord, to abandon himself to the Lord. And it's that which like, you know, just chews him up the most or just kind of eats at him. Uh, now, he's grateful for the grace that has entered into his life from the vantage of the time when he's writing the confessions, but he's also still, you can feel it in his prose and the way in which he gives expression to it, that he doesn't quite understand himself, even from a from a wise distance. And so, yeah, like, I mean, he, he recounts the scene here where he kind of lashes out at Olympias and he flees to the garden because he's just so torn up. He's in a place of almost perfect attrition, just like perfect auto-destruction because of what's gone before, because of the questions that he's posing, because of the difficulties that have been, you know, kind of set before him along the way. So, uh, Father Jacob Bertrand, how do we approach St. Augustine at this stage as he is, he's wont to lash out, might he lash out at us, the reader, might he lash out at the God who has been drawing him close? You know, how do we approach him with uh, with sufficient sympathy and love? Yeah, the... The game of self-knowledge in the Christian life is an important but a difficult one. And like super simply, we have to, not in a sort of modern existential way, but we have to know ourselves in some capacity in order to beg the mercy of God. You know, we have to know our weaknesses, our sin, our vices, so that we might ask for God's grace and healing. But getting to that point, 
takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of grace and, and humility too, right? To say that like, this is me, this is my weakness, this is who I am. Um, the contemporary, the 20th and 21st century spiritual author, Father Jacques Philippe talks about this sort of like freedom and knowing yourself a lot and the ability to recognize that God's grace works on real people, but coming to the the real person of who I am, breaking down those facades, it's tough. And this is what Augustine is experiencing. And again, he's not perfect. So he takes it out on people in his life, those who are close to him. And I know, you know, I'm not always the most easygoing or whatever person. So I, I, I can relate to that sort of frustration being taken out in the wrong places, but my doing that to other people. So I think just in the common human experience of this, we can connect with Augustine like really easily, really simply, you know, there's a frustration, I think on his end with recognizing the brokenness of his life, there's a frustration on his end with recognizing the difficulty of sort of handing himself over to Christ. There's a frustration with all of these things. So it's kind of just like recognizing that and bearing it with Augustine as we read these pages. And as is his custom, uh, St. Augustine is going to take this, you know, this particular occasion where he's feeling fractured or compartmentalized or, you know, at odds with himself, and it's going to be the basis of an extended philosophical disquisition. So just when you thought the moment had arrived, he's got many things to share with you about the difference between being able to do something and doing something, which, while it is an interruption and can feel frustrating at the moment, um, it's actually very beautiful uh, because it is a deep mystery. So against the Manichees, he's going to argue, no, we're just one thing. We have one will. Mind you, there's a certain complexity, and especially with original sin, we talked in an earlier episode about the fact that we fall prey to ignorance and malice and weakness and concupiscence. And so because we're directed to a variety of good things, but we're not directed to those good things in orderly fashion, a desire for lower things can kind of trump a desire for higher things, or at least it can grind up against it, cause friction in the system. And you're seeing that in St. Augustine, but he has this desire for wholeness. He has this desire for integration. And yet here we are. So he has this yeah, extended meditation on the difference between being able to do something and in fact doing something. So bringing something to a, a formulated kind of state, but then not being able to command it or see it through. So as you meditate with St. Augustine on this uh, kind of mystery of iniquity or this mystery of paralysis, what do you draw from it fruit-wise? That we are weak, that I'm weak. <laughs> oh my gosh, like totally weak. My will is so weak. I think of Lent, I make it through two days of Lent with any sort of, you know, I, I barely get to the first Friday of Lent and I'm already over fasting, you know, or like <laughs> the sort of like desire to pursue virtue in things, you know, okay, I'm going to stop being you know, such a jerk in this circumstance or whatever. It's like, I'll do it for a day and then it doesn't happen. You know, I fall back into the same old habit. So because of sin, original and personal sin, our desires for like fleshly bodily satisfaction trump those for spiritual goods and spiritual satisfaction. Um, you know, even this this morning in prayer in our chapel, we don't have like central air in our house. We have window units. And in the chapel, we turn off the window unit when we're in there. And like immediately I can feel the temperature probably rises half a degree, but I sit there and I can feel the temperature rising. I'm just like totally distracted and can't wait to have the AC back on. You know, and this is so, instead of thinking about our Lord. So the body 
controls often in in brokenness and yeah it tries to regain control and control and control and i think for us as it is for saint augustine that there's has to be the recognition that yeah we might move on from sin but the reality of temptation always looms so we have to be on guard against that but also as we grow in holiness and and move from sin trust that the our lord's grace and that the habits of virtue begin to take over you know so there there's a sense of freedom so it's a both and it's a recognizing that yeah gosh, sometimes the body desires this and the will desires this and the spirit desires that. But ultimately, you know, Christ is working in our lives as he is in Augustine's. So here's hoping, you know, here's trusting in that. Boom. And uh, we find St. Augustine at this juncture in a garden with his friend Olypius. So he's drawn away from his friends so that he can, uh, you know, kind of go through whatever he's going through in the privacy or the intimacy of that encounter. But it's a garden, so that's a place of creation. Maybe it's going to be a place of recreation. It's a place of fall. Maybe it's going to be a place of redemption. It's a place of agony. Certainly, we've already seen the agony at this stage, so we know that for a fact. So let's get excited for the next episode because big things are in store. So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>